Hello, listeners. Jordan here. I just want to let you know that you can listen to Nighttime early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Include it with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. You are tuned to the Nighttime Podcast, focused on the fringe of Canada. For most of us listening, the last six months have passed by uneventfully, with our days and weeks lost to the grind of our work, our chores, and other forgettable tasks. But of course there are the adventurous among us who've embarked on an exciting new journey, and I'm sure some others have met some of life's milestones during that period. If that's you, congratulations on your wedding, birth of your child, retirement, etc. But sadly, and tragically, there is at least one family among us who have spent the last six months enduring a situation that's quite simply unimaginable. The story I'll share tonight surrounds a 20-year-old Alberta man's decision to step out of his comfort zone and embark on an adventure with a close friend. I'm not talking about something risky or dangerous. Their plan was quite simple, really. Take a year off school and spend the winter in the mountains of British Columbia working at one of Canada's most beautiful ski resorts. But as it turns out, something went wrong. What? No one knows exactly. But what we do know is that his family, his friends, and an army of big-hearted volunteers have been searching tirelessly, hoping to find him or any trace of a trail he may have left after he was last seen leaving a house party on the early morning hours of February 17th. Tonight, our topic will be the life, the disappearance, and the search for Ryan Stuka. Stuka was last seen in the early morning hours of Saturday, February 17th, after a house party on Burfield Drive. It's believed that he left the party to walk home, just a short distance away, around 2.10 in the morning. Despite the ongoing search by RCMP, Kamloops Search and Rescue and community volunteers, there has been no sign of the 20-year-old. As concerning as the frequency is, Every few months I receive a flurry of messages from listeners bringing my attention to an active missing persons case that's making the news or being spread across social media. In some cases, the public's strong reaction is due to some exceptionally distressing detail of the news reports. In other cases, the public simply rallies their support because the missing person or the circumstances of the case just seem so regular and relatable like something that seems just as likely could have happened to someone we love. Tonight's story is an example of this. When I began receiving messages asking if I was aware of the search for a young man last seen at a ski resort in BC, I started with the obvious first step and turned to the recent news articles and began to learn about Ryan Stuka and the events leading to his disappearance. Almost immediately, I understood the public's concern for Ryan and motivation to serve as advocates for his family. First of all, Ryan Stuka comes across as a bit of an everyman. 
you'll likely feel he, he's either a lot like you or a bunch like the people close to you. And when you hear about the Stuka family's search for their missing son, it'll be hard not to want to pitch in and help in some way. At least that was my experience. The best thing I could think of doing was to help share the story with you. So let's get to it. When we hear the story, our guest will be the courageous woman who's been leading the search for Ryan, both in the mountains of Sun Peaks, BC, and from her computer via the Missing Ryan Stuka Facebook group. I asked her to introduce herself and expected a summary of her interests and career accomplishments. But as you'll hear, she really has one thing on her mind, to the point that it almost defines her. So my name is Heather Stuka. Um, I am Ryan Stuka's mom. When I planned to cover Ryan's disappearance, getting some time to chat with his mother, Heather, was the obvious route to take. Heather is clearly the face of the family and Ryan's loved ones, not only because she's his mom, but because of her lead role she takes both in the search and in providing emotional video updates to those following the case on the Missing Ryan Stuka Facebook group. Fortunately, I was able to connect with Heather during some downtime, and she was more than willing to tell me about her son, his disappearance, and the great efforts being made to find him. I'll begin now by telling this story with excerpts of my conversation with his mom, Heather. But before we get into the events of Ryan's last known activities in the mountains of British Columbia, we're going to spend some time and learn a bit about him and hear about his life back in his hometown of Beaumont, Alberta. Heather and I began our conversation with a discussion surrounding Ryan's personality and his lifestyle. I would say that he was a typical 20-year-old, average. Uh, you know, every single day um, he'd come home from work. He would actually go and have a shower before he went and worked out. But he worked out every single day. Went to the gym every single day. He loved um, rugby. That was his uh, sport as he grew up. He played soccer throughout um, as a kid and then played football in high school and then sort of took on rugby and that became something that was a passion. He really, really loved it. So those were the things that he did. As I said prior, Ryan lived a pretty ordinary life, much like a lot of you listening or your brothers or classmates. For me, I think that's why I got so interested in his case to begin with. It's perhaps unkind to say, but the familiarity makes a story like this more concerning. It's not something people like to admit, but when you read a news story that involves something tragic happening, most of us take comfort in considering the differences between our lives and those of the ones in the story. They live on the other side of the world or live a risky life, that sort of thing. But the more I hear about Ryan, the less room I have for this type of relief. When I asked Heather to tell me about Ryan's social life, again, it all sounded so relatable. Ryan has, has had this group of friends since, really a group of friends that he met when we moved to Beaumont in grade one. It was a core group of, of kids that he hung around with all growing up. Certainly, he, he met some people through rugby, but still would go back to the core group. And so his personality, if you, if you met him, would have been you know cautious when he's meeting new people. But if, if you asked his friends, they would say that, you know, he was funny, he was sarcastic, he was loyal. They were all the things that, you know, very he was very social. But he could make friends, but he really loved his core group of people. And now that we know a little bit about the kind of guy Ryan is, we'll next consider what was going on in his life just prior to his decision to spend a winter working the ski resort where he'd last be seen. 
As Heather comes to explain, Ryan, like many other 19-year-olds, was sort of at a crossroads in life. After graduating high school, it was time to start making decisions that should have set him on a course that he'd follow through adulthood. He had finished high school, had uh, taken a year off, and had worked with my husband and his company for the year, and wanted to get a sense of whether that was something he wanted to do or not. Found out that... uh, and that he, I think he wanted to do a little bit more stuff with his brain than maybe with the brawn. And so he went, uh, took a year and went to university, took general sciences and did really well in that and still didn't really have an idea of what he wanted to do with his life. And I think that's typical of kids that age now, not exactly sure what you want to do. And so after he finished a year of work and a year of school, he thought he would have a year of adventure. After taking a break from school and more or less treading water in Beaumont, Ryan would now make the fateful decision to leave town for an interesting seasonal work opportunity in the mountains of British Columbia. Heather told me about when Ryan shared his plans with her. So it's funny because I work for an airline and so as soon as he took a year off uh, and said he didn't want to go to school, he wanted to take a year off to work, I was like, oh, okay, so you're going to go you should go to Italy, you should go to Amsterdam, you should go here. And and I, I really thought, oh my goodness, you have the opportunity to travel in a way that other people don't. You should utilize that because I can only imagine that's what I would have wanted to do. But he was very, very close to being at home. It was a big decision. And so I remember him telling me on his birthday, I had taken him out uh, for birthday lunch and he sat there and he sort of had this, like he was hesitant about telling me he, you could tell he was excited, but he, he wasn't sure what our, my reaction was going to be. So he's like, so I was thinking about maybe, you know, in the fall, going to a ski resort and I don't know, maybe like like snowboarding and working at the resort for the year. And of course, I'm enthusiastic. I, I'm I'm so pleased. I'm thinking, oh my goodness, because all he does, he, he stays at home. He, he's very close to home, close to his friends. When, what an adventure you can have. And I'm so glad that you're stepping outside of your comfort zone. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. When Ryan decided to pursue this adventure, his family was encouraging and supportive. He was stepping out of his comfort zone and the opportunity was both something he'd enjoy and who knows, maybe it'll lead to something bigger and better. Initially, when Ryan and his childhood friend decided to spend the winter ski season working in the mountains of British Columbia, the plan was quite loose. Of course, um, for him, it, it was going because he had another, him and another, his roommate, James were going to be the ones that were going to go together. So Ryan would never have taken this step if he hadn't had somebody to go with. So again, that's just his personality. So his plan was just to work at the resort, just get the experience of, I don't, I don't know, I, don't, I think living a life of adventure where you're out of the house, still can come home only for a short period of time and doing something that you loved. And he really loved snowboarding. Um, and so 
that that was his plan, just to come here and work for the season and then come back home. Anyone who's spent time at a ski resort will likely recall seeing young men and women like Ryan filling the types of positions he held at the ski lift. I don't know if this is the correct technical term, but as Heather told me, Ryan was a lifty. They call him lifties, but um, Ryan's actual job was he was the two-part lifty. So helped at the they have a tube park, so inner tubes where they go down on the hill. That he had, I think, probably the best shift ever here because it's like 11.30 to 7 or 11.30 to 7.30, something like that. So plenty of time to get up and snowboard in the morning and still able to come home at a reasonable hour and hang out and do the things that you wanted to. So, you know, for for a 20-year-old kid living up here, I think it was a, probably one of the best shifts ever. Working as a lifty at the Sun Peaks Ski Resort was just one small part of his motivation to go there. Even that may be overstating it. The job working the chairlift simply gave him the financial means to make the snowboarding trip of a lifetime possible. Much like many 19 and 20 year old boys, Ryan's communication with his mom was short and he wasn't overly talkative. He was living on his own in a snowboarder's paradise. During our conversation, Heather spoke about the communication she had back and forth with Ryan during this period. Communication and texts that with each passing day increasingly seem to be the last conversations they'll have. Well, of course, you know, 20 years old, does he really want to talk to his mom? Probably not a whole lot, right? So, you know, I would send him texts. He has it going. A lot of it's a one-word answer from good. Like, it was hard. It was like pulling teeth, which I, I don't know if, if most people expect that from that age, but um, that's that's what it was. But, you know, I'd always say, I'm hoping you're having a great day. Just wanted to tell you I love you and I miss you. And he'd come always come back with love you and miss you. And I, I remember because I still have the text where he was saying, you know, I'm actually really happy, Mom. And I was like, that's great. I'm, I'm really happy to hear that. Uh, I had said, you know, so is your plan to, to come home? Because I thought, well, maybe he'll continue on with this adventure. He's found something he really loves and, and he's really happy. And then it was like the the sarcastic obs I'm coming home, mom. I'm it's you know, there's no work up here in, in the summer. Um so I'm gonna come home and, and but I you know, he was enjoying his time here. He had actually said, you know, I'm I've been snowboarding thirty six days straight. So he'd do that before work or on his days off. As you'll soon hear, Ryan's social activity while at the Sun Peaks ski resort will at least indirectly play into the circumstances of his disappearance. What Heather knew about her son's social life paints an unremarkable picture. He was living in a house with uh, five other people. So it, it would have been his roommate, James, that he came up from Beaumont with. Um, another couple that had another bedroom and then two more girls that lived up on top. So there's six people in total. And it sounded like, from all intents and purposes, from what we've heard, is that he hung out with his roommates. And in fact, um, on the days that they didn't go out, Ryan stayed in. So, so we haven't heard that he did a lot of partying except with um, his roommates or the, the social group that they sort of met through those roommates. Um, I think that he, he went up to the village um, when his roommates went up, but I don't think that he was an avid partier in a sense that he went out all the time if his roommates hadn't. That, I mean, and those are things, those are things I don't expect um, him to, to tell me 
um, as a mother, I, ex- I expect that sort of thing is, is not um, a conversation that usually gets had. But he would just let us know that he was going out with his mates is pretty much what he said. While living at Sun Peaks, a fairly typical night will end with Ryan's last known sighting. Ryan attends what some call a party, others a get-together or gathering. But regardless of what you call it, nothing unusual is said to have happened there, except the fact that no one saw Ryan leave and no one's seen him since. So they had actually gone to one of the bars up here. They were having a silent disco. So that's uh, what they originally had started out. So they had been here until about one o'clock when the when the bar had shut down for the evening, and then were walking home. Were picked up by um, a Greyhound or a charter bus that was coming by, and the driver was generous enough to pick them up in that temperature. So it was probably about they say anywhere between ten to fourteen people that were all sort of leaving um, together and walking, um, and so this charter bus had picked them up and dropped them off probably about a, a minute or so away from where they went. Now, I don't know what happened on the bus. If they, if they had already known that they were going to go to one of these houses to, to sort of hang out. From from what we have understood, there's three houses that people gathered, and those were um, people from the hill. So the lifties, um, the people that worked in the hotels and that sort of thing. So party is probably not the greatest word to describe it, although that's the word that that has been used quite often. I would say that was gathering for people because people would come and go from these houses and there was no set structure or anything else like that. It wasn't sending out to, hey, this is where we're doing it. They would come from bars, they would come from their house or that sort of thing and they would leave throughout the, the whole night. And so that's that was the one place that that was decided that they would go to. So there was a, probably a group of nine or ten of Ryan's friends and roommates that gathered there at that time. There's certainly more people that had come um, before and certainly had come afterwards. So Ryan sat with that group. It, it sounds from the interviews that we're taking and the conversations that we've had that he stayed pretty much on that couch with that group of people and they weren't there that long. I would say at the very most 45 minutes before you know James had left to go home early. And then the other two roommates and another friend got up and left and said, okay, we're leaving. And Ryan stood up, put on his coat, and then walked towards the door. What happened at that party, by all accounts, was unremarkable. That said, one moment, despite being brief and quite vague, will change the lives of everyone there and everyone who knows Ryan Stuka. The moment he seems to have left and seemingly walked into thin air. Now they just continued out the door. I don't know if Ryan stopped to tie up shoes. I don't know if Ryan stopped to have another conversation. Whatever the reason, the the two roommates and the friend walked out the door and continued on their way home and then sort of looked behind them after a a bit and noticed Ryan wasn't there. They thought either he's coming or he decided to stay, which probably may not have seemed abnormal. And I certainly don't expect, you know, people at, at that age and that temperature to sit there and wait for a 20-year-old to show up. So they just assumed that that he was coming behind them, and then they just went home. Given the fog and haze that covers memories of the nights like the one Ryan went missing, it wasn't immediately apparent to those close to him something was wrong. Perhaps he met a girl or stayed with another friend. Concern, however, would be immediate and urgent when the dependable Ryan failed to show up for his shift the next day. So Ryan lived in a house where there's six. There's only two bedrooms in this place and a loft. 
So Ryan actually shared a room with his roommate, James. They had the privilege of, of paying probably an extraordinary amount of money um, for him to have a twin bunk bed. So that he had, he slept on the bottom bunk, James slept on the, on the top. And when we went into this room, it really is no bigger than the size of a closet. Um, so they have to put uh, a TV in there and, and that's it. So now I, I don't know, uh, of course, James' state of mind. So he doesn't work the next day. He's sleeping and probably doesn't notice if Ryan's in or not. It wasn't until probably about 11, after 11.30, that um, the manager for where Ryan was working called one of the roommates and said, look, Ryan didn't show up. And that's unusual because we, we know Ryan, he, uh, obviously lived at home, was never late for work, only missed uh, one day of work uh, due to concussion from rugby. So I had never missed work, never had been late for work. So we know that to be his personality. I don't expect someone to know his work ethic from him being there for two and a half months. But yet it was enough for them to be concerned that he didn't show up, that they called. I, I think at that point, I don't know if, if just the roommates don't want to raise alarms. They're thinking, okay, it's unusual. This is not him. He shows up for work. He's not the type that would meet a girl and just and, and not show up or to pass out somewhere. So I think that their gut told them that that was unusual, and yet they don't want to raise the alarm. So they think, well, maybe he goes to work. And so they had sent a text message to one of the girls that was working and said, hey, you know, let us know when Ryan shows up. Well, that um, that girl does not text until after she finishes work at 7.30 because she's working, right? Probably not checking her phone. Um, and so it wasn't until 7.30 when she responded back to him and said, he never showed up today. So I don't know if they then panicked and started looking around to see that none of his equipment's gone, his ski pass is still there, all of those things. Um, and that's when they called uh, the RCMP at, at about 8.30 on Saturday evening, BC time. To, to report him being missing. And then we, we got, I think, the, the text message shortly thereafter. As you just heard, it was Ryan's roommates who learned about his disappearance initially. But sensing this isn't a simple misunderstanding, the authorities would become involved via a missing persons report and Ryan's family would become involved via a text message and a phone call that Heather will never forget. It, it was so interesting. We had been out all day with Jordan. Um, she plays ring and she was in a tournament. So we'd been back and forth all day um, and had just arrived home for the, the last game of that evening. So it was probably about 9.30 our time. And so I'm, I'm just texting my friend and we're kind of going back and forth because her daughter played and, and just having uh, sort of a, a general text message. And then um, I got a text from Ryan's roommate and I, I check it. And literally the text had said, Hey, Heather, I don't want to worry you, but Ryan didn't come home last night and he never showed up for work today. We filed a missing person's uh, report with the police. Just wanted to give you a heads up in case they call. Like I'm, I'm skimming through it and I'm kind of like, I, I don't understand really what the text is saying. My my mind's not processing it. And I'm like, uh, Scott, and I'm trying to read to him as fast as I'm reading it. And I'm skipping parts and Scott's like, I, I don't understand what you're saying either. And I'm like, okay, Ryan didn't show up, didn't come home last night. And he didn't show up for work. And he's like, what? And he goes, you need to get James on the phone. Like we need to find out exactly what's been done so far. And even like when we called 
it, 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 it was surreal. It's sort of like, well, you know, we did this, we're waiting. And I'm like, okay, so what has been done? Like, I don't understand the area. I don't know where you live. We had been up there two years prior for New Year's Eve, but I don't know the area. I don't, I don't, I don't know where Ryan lived. I, I couldn't have told you the direction. I couldn't have told you the location. So I'm like, what, what do you mean he walked out? What do you mean there's a road? Like, is there a path? I don't, is it forced? I don't know what you're, you're saying to me. What are you looking? Have you been out looking? And so all of this information is, is just coming in pieces and none of it seems to be making sense to us. So finally, um, Scott called the RCMP and, and got a, not even a better sense, but, but something that what they were doing. We're on our way up to the hill. It takes 45 minutes at this point. So they're not even at the hill at this point to even start anything. And we're just, we're like, okay, we're, we're coming because that's not our son. That is, that's not Ryan. And then I look back. And I remember sending him a text message that day, Saturday, and just saying, hey, good morning, sunshine. I love you. Hope you're having a good day. And of course, I don't hear from him. I don't expect to hear from him right away. And then I go back and look at this, and I realize it hasn't even been delivered. So it's just sitting there. And our hearts dropped. And I remember walking around the house going, okay, like, Scott, are we, are we going? He goes, I, I, yeah, we're going to go. I, I don't understand this. Like I just, I remember talking to myself and just being in complete shock because I knew then that wasn't Ryan. It, it we never had to worry about him. And at that moment, I dropped and I'm like, "This is this is not going to be okay. This is this is not okay." After learning that Ryan was unaccounted for and reported missing, Heather and her husband Scott made immediate plans to leave Beaumont and make their way to the snow-covered mountains and assist in the ongoing search for Ryan. The search, as you'll hear, started off strong, but turned up very little. We found out at probably about 9.30. We probably left Beaumont at about quarter to 11 and then drove through the night. So we arrived in Sun Peaks, probably about 6.30, went to the house first because um, the RCMP weren't going to be back up there. We had talked to them in the middle of the night, and they had said, you know, we suspended the search. We'll be back up at daylight with the dogs, and search and rescue should be there about 8, 8.30. I just remember thinking, but, but he's missing. Shouldn't, shouldn't we be searching all night? I, I get it logically that you can't, especially in this environment, there is no searching all night. There's, there's, um, it's dim, it's cold, um, and and it's treacherous. But at the moment, I just remember going, okay, so there, we'll meet them up there later. And so we arrived at the house where Ryan was living, met with the roommates that were there. They sort of gave us an overview, and then we left and um, met up with the RCMP. And I just remember driving probably about 45 minutes outside of Sun Peak, and I just remember our our hearts are sinking because we haven't heard from the RCMP all night. We, we don't know if they're just not telling us that they found Ryan. And then the first thing that we do when we arrive up on the mountain in the morning is that they're going to tell us, we found your son. I thought that would be the worst thing that I would hear after finding out that he'd been missing. We, we couldn't settle ourselves. The, the last 45 minutes was probably the roughest we had been since we had found out he had been missing. So just having to stop the car couldn't quite catch our breath knowing that the moment is coming. We're, we're going to find out um, every, all of our fears are going to come true. And then we arrive up in Sun Peaks, met the RCMP officers and they said, we've, we've been up here since um, daylight. 
we still haven't found a trace of them. And then search and rescue showed up about about eight eight thirty and started probably um, searching about you know once we'd mobilized probably about nine nine thirty. We we expected during that day um, that they would have found him within the next couple of hours. So you're you're just waiting. You're waiting for that because at this point the temperature drop and the fact that he's been missing for so long and nobody knows anything, you, you know it's not going to be a good outcome. And yet the day went by and we went back to our hotel room probably about seven and then our friends started showing up. And I remember all seven of us sitting around uh, the hotel room and the RCMP and search and rescue coming in saying, we, we didn't find him today. And I'm thinking, okay. And they said, we've done all the tasks that, that the RCMP has set out for us. And so until something new comes up, we won't, we won't be back up. And I'm thinking, okay, so I'll see you tomorrow. Like I'll see somebody tomorrow. Somebody, someone's going to be here. And my friends look at me and they, and they say now to me, well, you, you remember the constable saying, so on your way out of town tomorrow, you could stop in to see us at the, at the detachment and we'll tell you um, what the next steps will be. I don't remember that at all. Um, I'm just thinking, well, like we have to still search. Like he, he's still out there. We haven't found him. And then everybody went home. The, the RCMP continued their investigations that would happen in a normal policing person. I guess criminal investigation, but there there was nobody searching on Monday. Despite what will be the largest professional search team being deployed during the search for Ryan, the results were abysmal. After RCMP and Search and Rescue suspends their search, Heather, her husband Scott, and a few friends are now at the Sun Peaks Ski Resorts, alone without their son and with very little to go on. At this point in the search, without professionals to guide them and no lead to pursue, it seemed anything could be possible. It's like Ryan walked to that door and vanished in the thin air. Almost probably the same probability as alien abduction. If, 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 you know, like it's vanished. There's not a direction that anybody could tell me that he went. Nobody saw him. There, there's, there's not articles of clothing. There was not footsteps. There was not scents uh, that the dogs could pick up. Literally, there was nothing beyond that door of that house that he left. With slightly more than nothing to go on, and the professional searchers having packed up and gone home, Heather and Scott now begin their legendary civilian-led search for Ryan Stuka. On Monday morning, only days after Ryan was last seen, they returned to what the day prior was the Search and Rescue Command Center, and despite the falling snow, they got back to work. So, it's Monday, February 19th. We, we walked down to the same place that uh, they had um, had their command center the day before, and I think they were surprised that, well, I know they were surprised that they were there, that we were there. They just sort of looked at us and went, oh, Mr. and Mrs. Shuka, hi. And I was like, okay, so um, like, do we do we go into that room again? Everything was back to the way it was prior to us even arriving. So the rooms were exactly the same and they had to move things up. And they were so gracious, but there was nothing there. And so I sat in, I couldn't search with, with my injury. So I sat in a trauma room. Um, Scott 
and the five friends that had came up, they started their search on that Monday. We, we didn't know what to do at that point. We just thought, we'll, we'll walk. And so that's what they did. One of my friends, she said she had a pea coat on. She didn't even bring winter wear because that wasn't the expectation that, that she would search. She thought she was just coming up to support. And then when you look at the Monday and you realize there isn't anybody else around, they, they quickly mobilized. So they had to go get snowshoes. They had to go buy um, winter gear. They had to get poles. A lot of these things, we, we we had no idea. We had no idea how to search. We didn't know how to do grid searches. We didn't know what we were looking for when we actually searched. How far down the pole? We had ski poles that had the, the, the end on them. Well, that only goes so far. We needed to go further than that because 16 centimeters had fallen. And almost every day after that, we had more snowfall. Um, you know, I understand from a legality sort of a point of view, the search and rescue were unable to give us any direction at all. So they couldn't tell us how to search. They couldn't tell us where to search. They couldn't give us any information at all. There was nobody that was going to be able to help us. There was nobody. And so we learned. And the bitter part is, is that we didn't know a lot of this stuff until we learned like three weeks later. We'd have, we had a whole map. We had a primary zone. We had a secondary zone. And of course we had the hot zone. So the hot zone was the, the house that he was at where he should have been. So that direction, the three directions he could have taken to get there. So that was our hot spot. The, the primary was that whole area. Secondary was up at the top of the hill where you, you don't expect him to have gone. So that wasn't where we, we wanted to focus all of our search on. But we would send people. We'd have tons of volunteers that came in. And so if you came in with your three or four people, we'd say, okay, here, we're going to send you to zone one. You're going to search in zone one and then come back to us. But without showing them the proper techniques, we couldn't say with any certainty how well they would have searched. I know they, they were desperate to try, but even me, when I went out and searched, I'm looking at it going, I have a desperation to find my son like no other. And yet I couldn't say with any certainty after searching an area that he wasn't there. So about, about three and a half weeks in, we just decided to do one area. And I, and I was with um, Juliana, my, my youngest, and two of my friends, and we sort of were looking in the area. And that seems surreal to me now when I think about my 13 or about 12-year-old is out searching for her brother. And, and you know, what happens if she finds him? We don't think about that until after. doesn't even dawn on us at the time. So we're searching, and I'm like, I just want to blitz this whole area. So we had all of our volunteers that came out that day. Scott brought them all, and we really literally burned that area to the ground. We dug it out. And when we walk away for the first time in three and a half weeks, we all could say with certainty, Ryan's not there. We hadn't been able to say that before. And that's, that's what we learn after three and a half weeks, heartbreakingly, is that what we've been doing is wrong. Um, that we shouldn't be sending volunteers out to one, one area. We should be sending all the volunteers to one area. And that's what started. We did grid work after that, where we would sit there and do a section of um, behind the houses where the the two where the Burfield area was the the house that that he was last seen at, and we would do a grid pattern, and you would literally spend all day there marking it out six inches by by your ski pole. You would do between people, and you put the ski pole between you and the next person. You were 
you were to go no further than that and you put the ski pole in front of you and that was your zone. You would hit that um, ski pole down every six inches or something like that to get down to a certain area and you, you'd pull it out and you did not leave that area until you had cross-section and you were able to see it. So we could say, even though it took you know, hours and days to do a certain section, 100% of that was done. But we learned that through trial and error, which I find unfathomable now that we had to do so much in order to search the line and, and with no success at this point. As the search stretched on, using trial and error as a main component of the technique used, word of Ryan's disappearance and his loved one's search for him began to spread. Perhaps it's because Ryan is like so many of us, or maybe it's because the odds were so heavily stacked against those searching for him, but something motivated random strangers to drop what they were doing and head to Sun Peaks to help in the search. Despite all the pain and misery in the world, the support Heather and her family received from total strangers gives me a bit of faith in humanity. So I expect um, our town of Beaumont. We've been there since uh, Ryan was five years old. Scott and I have volunteered in, in the community through various things. We have met so many people through sports and committees. Uh, you know, I expected a certain amount of support from our friends and family. That's where the majority of our, uh, we know our people are from. Um, and so it wasn't a surprise that they stepped up. Certainly I didn't, I didn't expect it the way the Beaumont and surrounding Edmonton Leduc area came together. I think I was so surprised by Sun Peaks. They, they were so welcoming. It was like Ryan was one of their own, even though he'd only been here for two and a half months. This community here in Sun Peaks has really taken us in. So Sun Peaks really stepped up. Kamloops has stepped up and, and had fundraisers for us. Uh, the majority of our volunteers have also come from the Kamloops and surrounding areas. They have been amazing. I, I don't think I ever expected. I, I sort of think that people wanted to do something for somebody else. I mean, just didn't know how. And, and Ryan going missing in their community provided them the opportunity to do something um, that they've always wanted to do. And so these communities have been amazing, absolutely amazing. Over a thousand volunteers have come up in this six-month period of time. And I would say to you, probably about 60% of them have come up more than once. It's been incredible. With this large amount of supporters coming from far and wide to assist in the search at Sun Peaks, what Heather and the team needed was a tip, a clue, something to direct their search in one way or another. As the search is in full swing, someone who spoke to police days after the disappearance to report seeing Ryan after his last known sighting would again tell their story, but this time it'd make its way to the right people. As Heather explained to me, a new lead at least temporarily directed the focus of the search to a different part of the resort than that of the previous hot zone around the house where the party occupied. That information came out within the first two days. But when we first came up to Sun Peaks, all the information was wrong about Ryan. He wasn't 19. He wasn't five foot six, and he wasn't 150 pounds or 160 pounds of what they said. Certainly, we clarified that with the RCMP and search and rescue. So they, they had all that information straight away. Um, it wasn't until we had clarified it and actually put that out into print that um, I guess the person that, that had thought they saw him 
had come forward. And they had posted it on our Facebook page as well as the Sun Peaks Survivor page, which is just a closed group for um, anybody living in the Sun Peaks area. And so they had posted saying, hey, I thought I maybe saw um, somebody that matched his description walking. I'm reporting it here because I want the parents to know that we've done this, but we also reported this to the RCMP. So as soon as we had it, we wrote that on our command center as tips. And that was an important one because matched um, the description coming in towards town um, at a timeline. Okay, well, the timeline seemed a little bit off to us at the moment based on what we were getting from the RCMP. And yet, still, Scott certainly went down there and, and checked the areas um, because you, you cross over and there's um, a, a bridge on both sides. It, some places were easy if you had slipped down, could he have slipped, slipped down and then had been covered by snow. So Scott went over there. Again, they don't know what they're looking for. So they did a cursory search and said, well, he's not there. And then marking up with the time with we knew at the time, and we, we, we sort of dismissed it. It wasn't until probably April we came again and we were sitting and um, the the person that had come forward had actually came and saw us again and said, Hey, just wanted to let you know, still, you know, I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna search and if there's anything else I can do. I I still just think, you know, I saw what I thought was was, was Ryan coming towards the village at that time. And I'm like, Okay, well I've I've heard so much information again. Can can you walk me through it? Tell me again, and I'm in a different state of mind. Tell me again. And they were like, I remember coming up and seeing someone match the description. I didn't report it the first day because this this guy was so much taller than what, what you guys reported him to be and heavier than what you thought. So I didn't. But as soon as you guys cleared that up, I reported it. But he's walking towards me. And I remember because I'm on the phone, they had actually marked down the time. So they actually screenshotted the time the phone call happened. Now we thought, okay, again, it's 1.55. Ryan's been reported to be at the party until 2.10. They don't match because from where the party was at to where this person would have seen Ryan, it's about a 20-minute walk. But then we realized um, at, during this conversation, they said, well, I talked to the roommates and they said the timeline might actually match up because the one roommate received a text from four people at the party. So remember when I said there was about nine of them sitting there all in a, on, on the couch together with Ryan being included? James gets up to go home. There's eight of them left. So the two roommates, the couple and the friend, get up and say to Ryan, we're leaving. They go towards the door. They, Ryan goes towards them. There's four now left. One of the girls that was sitting there as part of the four had taken a picture of the three, all four of them remaining, and had texted the roommate saying, hey, we're coming to your house to party. They sent that text about 1.36. The roommate doesn't see it until the next day, and of course, they never showed up, so doesn't really think about it, never really thinks about the timeline at all. But at 1.36, if they're sending a text message to the roommate that has already left with Ryan supposedly with them, that means that she's not there. They're still there at 136. So that tells us that potentially Ryan was also not there. You don't send a, um, a picture to, to somebody if you're at the same party with them. They're standing right beside you. I'm not sending a selfie to you saying, hey, I'm coming to your house if you're sitting right beside me. So that means that she is left at that time. So she's gone, 136. 
that means that Ryan could have walked out and decided to walk up towards the village. It would have taken him about 20 minutes, which would have brought him up there at 1.55, when the person that was driving home may have saw somebody. So we, when we have that information, we're like, okay, we called the RCMP and said, hey, so do you remember getting this tip? And, and they hadn't at the time. And they had to go back and look over it. And then I said, well, also, if you looked at the roommate, the roommate had also reported um, that they had received a text message. So this could correlate what are the chances of now getting search and rescue? Because we were told at the time search and rescue would not come back until one of two things happened. An environmental change, that meant the snow leaving, or a tip or a hint that led them into a different direction. Unfortunately for them, they felt the snow was too, still too deep, so they didn't send search and rescue out. They did a soft search, a tactical search. So they came out probably the next weekend and sort of looked in that area and did some, some grid work to when the snow would, would leave um, in May um, and where they would come back to search. So we did it ourselves. When this new lead, or more accurately, old but reconsidered lead, failed to turn up Ryan or any clue related to where he may be, the search is still one without a clear direction, or even a vague one. Given the amount of searching that was done, and the fact that no trace of Ryan has turned up, I had to ask Heather if she feels it's possible he's in fact in the area. You know, I wish I had a, a clear answer for what, you know, I could say it's mother's intuition. Um, you know, there is no evidence that Ryan left the hill. I wish there was. Um, and so, you know, we, we get questions all the time, like, don't you think you should now, you've been up there for almost six months, don't you think now it's time to move off the hill? Scott and I would gladly move off the hill and search somewhere else if we had another area to search, but we don't. It's almost like if I close my eyes and threw a pen at the Canadian map and say, okay, tomorrow we're in Aurelia, Ontario. That is as, as same as saying that we have to leave the hill. The last known sighting of him is here in Sun Peaks. We've had nothing else. There's been no verifiable information that tells us that he's been anywhere else. Certainly, we have the, the community at large that will come and um, give um, tips to the RCMP or through Crime Stoppers. Uh, and I'm glad they're vigilant, but at the end of the day, they are, you know, he's at a mini golf in Parkland or he's working as a lifeguard in, in Fairmont in uh, Canmore. Well, none of those can be verifiable. So those are just sightings of him. But other than that, there's been nothing, no gossip, no tip, no secondhand, thirdhand, secondhand, hand information that said from anybody that lives here on the hill saying, hey, we heard about something that maybe something happened and he's been taken off the hill. So until we have that, Scott and I have nothing else to go on. We, we stay here because we don't know where else to go and we can't give up. He's, he's our son he matters, and if we don't search, who else will? So we, we have to stay here. The RCMP let us know uh, when we were driving up that Saturday night when we received the, the text message that they did a humanitarian ping. So they did a humanitarian ping, um, I would say, Sunday morning. And the last ping that Ryan's phone gave 
was 3 a.m. I'm assuming Saturday morning. So he had gone missing in the early mornings of Saturday. The last ping was at three o'clock and he was in the Sun Peaks area. The, I'm sorry, the phone pinged and it was in the Sun Peaks area. Now, I don't know. It's hard to get any definitive answer from the RCMP whether um, the towers, uh, when they ping, if they traject and it's in the Sun Peaks area, because we have heard from other people that they could get a ping in Sycamus and, and say it being in Sun Peaks. I could do a post from Sun Peaks and yet it'll say that I'm in the Chase area and I'm, I'm not. Chase is an hour um, drive away through Kamloops. So I, I don't know if that um, gives us any more information than, than we don't, uh, that we, we don't already have. Um, could Ryan Stone had been pinging here, but Ryan's not? Um, is it that, you know, Ryan would be in chase and yet his phone says Sun Peaks? There is no definitive um, answer from the RCMP. The only thing that we know for sure is that um, there was a camera um, at a construction site at the upper part of the hill. It's the only camera that was working here in Sun Peaks. That could give us something, and it and it told us that no car came from the upper part of Sun Peaks between the hours of one o'clock, and then the car was driving out um, at about four o two. Sun Peaks is supposed to, from from all intents and purposes, have a camera at the bottom because there's only one way into Sun Peaks and one way out. There is a camera down there, but unfortunately, um, it's live feed. So we couldn't even have answers there. That would have disproved or proved a lot of theories within the first 24 hours if that camera actually was a security camera was working in the, in the intent and purpose it was supposed to be. But it's live feed. As we began to wrap up our conversation, I'd asked Heather about the next step in her search for her son. At the time of our conversation, the searching was reduced as the summer conditions, mainly the growth of the foliage, makes it impossible to venture into the brush. For us, Scott and I can't live here anymore. Um, you know, we ha- we have two daughters at home that, that need us. We've not worked since um, February 16th or 17th when we came up here. That can't continue the way it is. You know, you've gone through your all your resources and, and your uh, reserve funds and um, all your savings to, to be up here to give Ryan what what we believe he, he deserves and still deserves. Unfortunately, um, time is not on our side. So we'll come up. We're up here now. We'll come up again in, in September, even if it's four, four, five days. We'll come up in October and we'll come up until the snow falls and then once the snow melts, it's we'll still come up. I mean, until someone gives us another direction, some peaks will become part of us. We will we will never leave here without coming up and searching for our son. But does that mean every single month? I, I don't know what will happen um, next year. It I guess it's too soon to say. To wrap up our conversation, I wanted to end things by asking a difficult question, but one that I thought was necessary. For the duration of our talk, Heather referred to Ryan in the present tense. He is, as opposed to he was. Although she didn't come right out and say it, that led me to believe she'd maintained hope of finding her son alive. The last question I asked Heather was if she felt like he was alive somewhere out there in the mountains.
Um, you know, for us, it's it's hard. I mean, we're we're in this another place of of grief and hope. As his parents, of course, how could we ever give up hope that that Ryan has somehow survived? Um, and yet, for us, the the best case scenario of that, okay, so has he survived? But but again, there's still that loss um, where where he's been in the six months um, that that you know we've he's been missing it remains a mystery to us. And and so what what sort of experiences has has he gone through? Um, because the, the boy, the, the child that I loved, known all of my life and raised, um, that, is, that is not his character. His character would never be um, to let his loved ones, me especially, believe that he, he was dead um, and, and not come forward. So, you know, if, if he's out there and, and has survived somehow, I, I don't know what state that he would be in. So that is our best case scenario, which is not even the best, except that, you know, he's alive. And then we have our worst case scenarios um, that he went out in the elements and has gotten lost and we just can't find them. We're missing that piece of puzzle and, and we don't know where to look. And and the the timing that we had between the snow melting and the underbrush coming up, we've, we've missed it. We didn't know the direction. We haven't found you. We're missing that piece. And, and despite all our best efforts, we have not been able to find our son. Or or we have, um, you know, where you think about something has happened to him that was outside of his control, was something that he never wanted or intended, foul play or any of those things. That's hard. I mean, I, I think about my son, um, you know, I, I gave him life. Um, he he is he is forever part of my soul, and to think that he's no longer here is heartbreaking and devastating for me. That even just to think him out in the elements and and passing that way is a horrendous thought. But to actually think about that percentage where your mind goes to thinking, oh, someone's taken him, someone's you know did something to him, you know, he, he's, he's met with foul play and what those last moments would be like, what, what his fears were, what his thoughts were. I, that's, I can't, like, I, I don't go there very much because that is not something that is easily thought of, um, or, or, or even able to bear. Um, and so I don't, I don't know, um, where, what our, our, our scenarios are. I know that, that our lives are, are forever changed. I know that Ryan's life is forever changed. And not just his loved ones, but, but his friends that he left behind, the friends that he's known since he was a kid, the ones that he'd been closer, they're not bearing this very well either. They're, they're at this loss from somebody that they've known all their lives to, to go missing. Not reaching out to them either. Like, it's devastating. I want to thank Heather Stuka for taking time out of her busy schedule and talking to me about her son as well as the unimaginable situation his disappearance has placed their family in. Heather, the courage and strength you show while staring in the face of a parent's worst nightmare is truly inspiring. You have an army of supporters behind you, 
and I'm proud to stand with many of my listeners as members of that crowd. And with that said, I have a message for those of you listening. If you feel moved by Ryan's story and Heather's quest to find him, I want to end this episode with an appeal to you to get involved in any way you can. Your involvement could be something as simple as liking or joining the Missing Ryan Stuka Facebook group and following along with Heather's updates, or you could help spread awareness to others by sharing this episode or news releases related to Ryan on social media or via word of mouth. If by chance you're in the Kamloops area, you could volunteer to assist in one of the many ground searches. And anyone listening who has the financial means, you could make a donation to the Find Ryan Stuka GoFundMe campaign. And with that, we'll conclude this episode of Nighttime. I want to thank the Canadian band Vox Somnia for providing the music for this episode. You can find their really cool, really eerie music through the link in the show notes. If you're interested in hearing more from Nighttime, please check out the Patreon group, where for a dollar a month, you can support the show and gain access to the supporter-exclusive feed, which provides ad-free early releases of episodes in addition to prior episodes no longer available on the main feed. You can join by visiting patreon.com slash nighttimepodcast. I'd like to thank the current patrons of the show and welcome the newest members of the group. Sri Paul, Robbie McNeil, Shane, Sarah Pigeonfield, Deb, Brace for Christina, Amelia Bedelia, and Tecumish. I sincerely appreciate you supporting Nighttime and becoming patrons last month. And for anyone else out there who wants to support the show but can't help financially, you can give me a hand by telling your friends about Nighttime and leaving a positive review on Apple Podcasts or an equivalent. If any of you listening want to stay up to date with my activities both on and off the show, follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I use the handle at NighttimePod. If you have any story ideas or feedback on the show, I'd love to hear from you at NighttimePodcast at gmail.com. Now until next time, keep looking around and let me know when you see something weird. The Nighttime Podcast is written, hosted, and produced by Jordan Bonaparte. Copyright Jordan Bonaparte.